I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Robert Mueller, the special counsel investigating President Donald Trump's campaign, has handed over his conclusions. We look into how the report changes the landscape for the president and what will happen next. In 2015, Greece's hard-left Syriza party stormed to power, raging against the austerity that had gripped Europe for years. But economic realities set in, and Syriza moved toward the center. Now there's talk of an early election, and the party is struggling to hang on. It was an investigation that clouded all but the first few months of Donald Trump's presidency. But special counsel Robert Mueller has concluded that neither Mr. Trump nor his campaign team conspired with Russia during his 2016 campaign. There was no collusion with Russia. There was no obstruction and none whatsoever. And it was a complete and total exoneration. The president has not been exonerated by the special counsel, yet the attorney general has decided not to go further or apparently to share those findings with the public. Mr. Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the election began nearly two years ago. It involved more than 2,800 subpoenas, nearly 500 search warrants, and about 500 witnesses. On Friday, he passed his finished report to William Barr, the attorney general who yesterday made his four-page summary of the report public. And while Mr. Trump has been cleared of colluding with Russia, there remain questions over whether he, or anyone else in the White House, obstructed justice during the investigation. Mr. Barr wrote, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Although the submission of the report did not result in any further charges, there have already been 37 indictments or guilty pleas, and nearly 200 criminal charges over the course of the investigation. Some of Donald Trump's closest former advisors have been sent to prison. John Prudeau is our U.S. editor. Hi there, John. Hi, Jason. Um, We've been waiting, well, the world has been waiting for a better part of two years for this outcome. Um, What do you make of it? I'd say three things, I think. First, as a journalist, there's been this uneasy sense over the past couple of years that perhaps we were all missing something in this Russia collusion story. Perhaps there was some document that we hadn't found, perhaps somebody we hadn't interviewed who might have the key to it. It now looks like that wasn't the case, actually. There wasn't a big missing piece of this that wasn't already in the public domain. And so there's a bit of a sense of relief about that, about not having messed up. Second, for Donald Trump, 
clearly I think it's pretty good. Doesn't exonerate him, but it's about as good as he could have hoped for. Third, I think it's also good for America. I think the worst outcome would have been had Robert Mueller found that there was in fact evidence of deliberate collusion or coordination and some sort of conspiracy. And with that evidence, if Republicans in the Senate had looked at that and said, actually, we're, you know, we're going to ignore it, I think that would have been very, very bad for America politically, very damaging to American institutions, and it would have been a horrible mess. So I think that's the worst, that would have been the worst case scenario, and we've avoided that, which is good. John, we're here in London. What's the view from the D.C. office? Jason, I spoke last night to our Washington correspondent, James Astill, who gave me his analysis of the report. We can certainly assume that it's a fair summary of what uh, Robert Mueller found. The controversy, which we already see starting to bubble in the political response to the Attorney General's summary, concerns the degree of legwork that the special counsel left for the Attorney General to do. The special counsel basically said, look, there's evidence that the president obstructed the course of justice. I leave it up to you, effectively, the Attorney General, to make a ruling on this. And therefore, the Attorney General, in ruling that he didn't think the evidence put forward by the special counsel is sufficient to clinch a case of obstruction of justice against the president. But that certainly suggested to the president's opponents that a party pre-Attorney General has taken a judgment call in defence of, of the president. So you think the most controversial bit is not the findings that no members of the Trump campaign team or indeed any American citizens sort of knowingly conspired with the Russian government to interfere with the 2016 election. That seems fairly cut and dried from the report. It's this question of did the president obstruct justice or not? And there, the attorney general's argument is a bit circular, isn't it? It, it sort of says that... If there wasn't anything to cover up, then almost by definition, you can't be obstructing justice. Yeah, so just to sort of stress the sort of asymmetry between those two parts of the Mueller investigation. On the first part, the question of conspiracy or coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, it seems that the special counsel's report has closed that case. No collusion, as the president says, between his campaign and the Russian government, which is a tremendous thing to be celebrated. And I think it would be hard to see that particular matter growing political legs that it doesn't have at the moment. On the, the second part of the report, as summarized by the Attorney General, has far more room for controversy because the special counsel clearly suggested to the Attorney General in his report, this is Robert Mueller, suggested to William Barr, look, here's some evidence that the president is guilty of obstruction of justice. Here's, I guess, some countervailing evidence or arguments. I think the special counsel, according to the Attorney General, su suggested that these are difficult matters, that the obstruction case is difficult to evaluate factually and legally. So he's left that judgment up to the Attorney General, who has ruled that the president is not guilty of obstruction of justice. Let's park the obstruction of justice point for a moment and go back to what I think most people think of as being the main bit of the Mueller investigation. Did members of Donald Trump's campaign team knowingly work with people representing the Russian government in one way or another? And it's pretty, pretty clear on, on that point. You and I have been looking at this stuff for at least two years. And right from the get-go, there have been some pretty outlandish rumours that purported to explain Donald Trump's strange behaviour towards Vladimir Putin. And lots of people said, well... 
the way Trump talks about Putin is just different to the way he talks about other foreign leaders. Putin must have something on him. There were various sort of salacious suggestions as to what that something might be. The Mueller report, from what we've seen from the summary, really buries that, doesn't it? I mean, I think we have to just put a line through that and say, actually, people who think those things, you know, got it wrong. I wouldn't go quite that far, John, because we know from reporting and some of the uh, the testimony that's come to light as a result of the Mueller investigation, that the president was conflicted on Russia. He had ongoing business interests in Russia as he was campaigning for the presidency. He lied about those interests. He said he had no interest in Russia. And at the same time, he was saying remarkably generous things towards Vladimir Putin. So I don't think one can say there's nothing there that the, the president's got a clean bill on his interest in, in Russia and how that fed into his politics and his political statements about Russia. But that's very much, it appears, that the degree to which that was acceptable appears to be a matter that's going to be left for American voters. It's not going to be a legal matter. It seems, on the basis of, of the Mueller investigation's conclusions as delivered by the Attorney General, it seems that though we know there was a degree of collusion between the Trump campaign and individuals somehow linked to the Russian government. There, there was an exchange of polling data, for example. We know that there was a meeting at which further help by Russian ind individuals, again, linked to the, the Trump campaign, that, that that was discussed. But those links, it seems, and if you like, it's the greatest thing for America about the summary of the Mueller report, as we understand it, didn't amount, in the special counsel's view, to a coordinated attempt by the Trump campaign to maximize the Russian effort, to take advantage of it, to conspire with it. Whatever coordination might have taken place was done, it seems, unwittingly on the part of the Trump campaign. That word unwittingly is important, isn't it? A lot of this seems to come down to intentions. Actually, you know, some of the chaos and sort of confusion that's characterized the way the Trump White House uh, is run, you know, was also true in the campaign. There was no sort of cunning conspiracy, nobody kind of pulling the strings. This was more a question of a lot of people, some of whom prepared to act in ways that seemed pretty immoral, um, just going about their business, trying to seek advantage, whether that advantage was political or financial, but, you know, not knowingly working with uh, members of Russian intelligence. I think we must be a little bit humble about what we know thus far. There will be more, we believe, uh, to come from the Mueller report. The Attorney General says that he is going to work on making as much of it public as he can. And so we may get more information on the degree of coordination or not, wittingly, unwittingly or not, um, that did take place between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. But yes, as things stand bearing very strongly in mind the special counsel's conclusion that the Trump campaign didn't conspire or coordinate with the Russian government's election-rigging campaign. That seems to be a very reasonable characterization of the links that, that certainly did take place between the Trump team and the Russians. 
John, Mr. Bars uh, offered us just a snapshot, really, the Mueller report, a four-page summary of this, this enormous thing. What are the odds that the public will see more of it, do you think? I think the public will see a bit more. One of the things that the summary of the report says was, is that the Attorney General is now going to spend a long time figuring out which bits can be legally released, and he will release as much of it as he can. So it's not quite clear what the timeline is on that, but I expect we'll have a bit more fairly soon. Okay, and, and as for what lies ahead, I mean, I've, I've heard this uh, called sort of the end of the beginning because uh, Democrats in Congress are fired up to, to continue investigating the president at, you know, in a bunch of directions. That's right. I think there'll be a lot of focus now on the various investigations run by the House. In particular, they want to follow the money, look at Donald Trump's business before he became president. So all that stuff is going to continue. I think the president will be able to point to the Mueller report and say, this has already been looked at, I've already been exonerated. But of course, those House investigations will be, se- will be looking at something rather separate. So on balance, John, do you, do you think this outcome has disappointed or, or empowered the Democrats? I think there'll be a bit of disappointment that the catharsis some Democrats were hoping that the Mueller report would bring doesn't seem to be there. On the flip side of that, I think the House Democratic leadership might be quite relieved. They never really wanted to impeach the president because they didn't think that they could persuade enough Republicans in the Senate to remove him. Had Robert Mueller provided lots of evidence that Donald Trump had done impeachable things, then there would have been a huge pressure from Democrats to impeach. Now that goes away a little bit. On balance, that's probably good for the Democratic House leadership. I mean, that's all kind of the, the longer term view. What do you think happens now with this summary just out? What's, what's going to happen this week? Well, we'll be waiting to see if there are any leaks. There haven't been leaks from the Department of Justice so far. They've been in control of the process. And then there'll be a fight over how much more gets disclosed and how quickly. Right, John, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Things are going relatively well in Greece. But Syriza, the leftist, or left-ish, ruling party, has been slowly losing support on both ends of the political spectrum. My colleague Anne McElvoy has been digging into the details. Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras burst onto the political scene in the 2000s. Alexis Tsipras is a firebrand former communist. And he promised to end the economic pain of Greece's debt crisis. Greek people will regain social cohesion and dignity. And the message is that our common future in Europe is not the future of austerity. He then led his leftist Syriza party to victory in the 2015 election. When they came in in January 2015, it was a shock to everyone. People thought it was the beginning of the end of Europe. Christopher Lockwood is our Europe editor. He recently interviewed Mr Tsipras, who's expected to hold elections before October. 
I think that people have slightly taken their eye off what's been going on in Greece. This same Alexis Tsipras, the leader of the coalition of the radical left, has transformed his party into a much more, he uses the phrase himself, a centre-left party. Christopher, take us back to 2015 when Syriza came to power a few years after the Eurozone crisis really began. What sort of shape was Greece in? Um, what was the mood of the population at that time? Well, it was desperate. There were continual demonstrations on the main Syntagma Square. You had had a protracted period going on since 2010 of economic downturn. GDP had fallen by about 25% from its pre-2008 crisis level. Unemployment was above 20%. I mean, it was really a complete mess. And how did Syriza manage to win that election? What were they promising? What were they campaigning on? They campaigned against the bailout. They said that successive bailouts from the EU were, and they used very tough phrases, they called it fiscal waterboarding, they talked about debtors' prisons. Then when they were elected, they negotiated the terms of a bailout, but decided that the terms were too arduous, called a referendum, campaigned against the bailout, and to the horror of everyone in Brussels, they won it, and won it very convincingly by 61% to 39 And what happened then? After the referendum, it became clear to Tsipras that this was a mistake, that without a bailout, Greece was going to go bankrupt. They might get expelled from the euro. That wasn't clear. But he quickly realized that actually he had to return to the negotiating table and do a complete volte face. And so he did. You've interviewed Alexis Tsipras recently. Did you gain much insight into why he made that U-turn? What weighed on him so heavily that he seemed to go against everything his party had campaigned on? He doesn't really explain why he thought one thing one day and the exact opposite the next day. He simply says, you know, you have to do what's necessary. And, of course, he was, some people would say, pushed into it by his very firebrand finance secretary, Yanis Varoufakis. You remember him with his leather jacket and his Unforgettable. motorbike. A, a, a fascinating man as well. But Varoufakis was completely disavowed, left the government, and in comes a different finance minister with a different agenda. And what came next? Glad, confident morning for the Greek economy or still a veil of tears? Well, the Greek economy, while not exactly booming, is doing perfectly respectably. It recorded 2% growth last year. Unemployment is now down at around 13%. It's doing much better than the Italian economy is. It's actually moving a bit faster than the German economy is at the moment. And what you have, finally, is a country that, as Cypress himself says, is a normal country. And I wonder when you're talking to Mr. Cypress, what kind of reflection did he give you on what his party has become? Because it sounds like a fairly compromising centre-left party that we could have found. In fact, we probably don't find as much around Europe these days as we used to. Yes, I think that's the most fascinating thing about Syriza. These social democratic parties, of which I think Syriza has clearly become one, barely exist in other countries. The socialists in France, destroyed by Macron, the SPD, the social democrats in Germany, have slumped to third place, you know, desperately trying to poll 15 or 16% only. And yet here is Syriza, who has shown that it is possible to reforge a sort of social democrat party. But at the same time, Syriza is down in the polls, and there's even talk that Mr. Tsipras might not complete his term, which ends in September. Why is that? 
the buzz in Athens really is that Tsipras will call an early election. He doesn't have to call an election until late October, but increasingly you hear people say he'll probably choose to go at the end of May and do it at the same time as European elections. And there's a few reasons for that. One is the economy may start to weaken again because other European economies are. And also, of course, if Syriza does badly in the European elections, that's bad momentum as you go forward into the next set of elections. And what would be at stake for Syriza in this election, whenever it's called? It's going to be tough for him to win this election, according to the polls. New democracy is a good 10 points clear in most of them. So he's lost support to the right, as you'd expect. And also, of course, some people on the left will think that he sold them out and didn't do what he said he was going to do. However, when I asked Alexis Tsipras this precise question, his argument was that he felt he had a, a clear mandate to do it. Because what happened in 2015 is, after the vault first and he accepted the deal, a big chunk of his MPs deserted him. So he called a second election in 2015 and he won a renewed mandate. So he would say, I put it to the Greek people, the Greek people backed what I did. But you know, clearly his vote has softened a bit. And even-handedly, you've also interviewed the leader of the opposition, that's Kyriakos Metsoutakis of the New Democracy Party, the centre-right party. How would you describe him? Kyriakos Mitsotakis, he's a sort of accomplished technocrat. Now, some people would say he's just another one of the same old breed of people that got Greece into problems in the first place. But um, he's quite impressive. He's clearly extremely smart. He was a minister in an earlier new democracy government where people considered it a quite good job of government reform, getting rid of corruption and waste and, and bringing greater accountability in. He does very much project himself as, as somebody who will continue to reform both government and his own party. It sounds like both the leaders have been trying to transform their parties in their different ways. But if I put you on the spot here, which do you think could be trusted to lead Greece as it continues on this path out of the crisis and maybe towards a more normal European politics? It's a tricky one. Tsipras has clearly tried to reform Syriza and, and bring it close to the centre. You'd have to question whether that's entirely been successful. Lots of people, apart from him within the party, are still really quite left-wing and there's a certain sort of hostility towards enterprise so that, you know, taxes on the middle class are still very high, business taxation and de-bureaucratization hasn't gone very well at all. But equally, New Democracy is still a rather old school conservative party. They voted against recognizing North Macedonia recently. They voted against recognizing gay civil partnerships. So, you know, both leaders have had difficulties and will have difficulties with their own party. But you'd be foolish not to expect New Democracy to win. Every poll really would have to be wildly wrong for that to happen. So I guess that's where my money would have to be. Christopher, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? 
What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.